chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Matthiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Mekeljah, Hashem, Hashbanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua, Benai, Sherabai, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hobadai, Masahai, Kelta, Azari, Jobad, Hanan, and Pella, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who returned from captivity made booths and lived in booths for from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to the day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was great rejoicing, and day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read the book of the law of God. 
They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. My name's Craig. I'm one of the elders here. Thankful to open God's word with you this morning. Before we dive in, just a quick family moment. Um, For those of you who call Christ Community home, um, this is your faith family. As you've just observed, there was this mass exodus of children as they're going off to learn, have the Bible taught to them, and spend some time together. One of the great blessings that we have as a faith family is all these kids, right? Um, Some of us in this room are fathers. All of us have fathers. And that obviously stirs up a lot of different emotions. But we all, by God's grace, because of Christ, we're all family. We're brought together by His blood. And so we're a spiritual family. That means uh, you guys who are in this room are spiritual fathers to a lot of folks that are younger than you. Um, We all bear responsibility to one another. I want to just make known to you a need that we have. Um, It continues to be an ongoing need to care for those little ones well during this time. So if you aren't, if you are currently signed up to help out with kids care, we are so grateful for you. Thank you for the sacrifices you're making to do that. If you're not, would you just consider doing that? Way that you can respond is at the end of the, after the sermon's done, after we do communion, there's going to be a connect card time. You can scan a QR code on the screens. You can go to the website. But if you would, just mark in there that you'd be willing to serve. That would be a real blessing. And it would also be, it would be a blessing to uh, the kids to have your influence in their life. It would be a blessing to you to be able to serve that way. I just, as a, as a father, one of the great blessings of my life is to see mature brothers and sisters in Christ who are older than my own kids discipling and mentoring my kids. I love it when I get to see my kids hanging out with people that I want them to be like, right? That's a, that's, that's a cool opportunity that you would have too, to be able to serve in that way. So, just want to invite you to take that seriously. It is a very serious need. It's one of the great blessings the Lord has entrusted to us. So, there we go. Family moment. Happy Father's Day. Let's turn to God's word. I'm just going to pray to open us up. Lord, thank you um, that you, just, just like we were praying, you are a good father, a perfect father. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us, your kids, right now, a sense of your nearness and of your fatherly care and love. It's true that you are greater than the greatest father on the face of the planet. You love us perfectly. I pray that your your spirit would fall on us now. Come and speak. We we want to receive from you on this day. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to dive right in. Um, Nehemiah. Chapter 8. Now, I'm, a little disclaimer. There, we've got, we did Ezra, now we're in Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is in this story, and so is Ezra. So I'm probably going to butcher these names about 800 times, okay? So just have mercy on poor old Craig up here. I'm trying to say the right words and tell you where we are in the Bible, but there's my disclaimer. I'm probably going to butcher it. Nehemiah chapter 8 is where we are. And let's just read verse 1 again together. Verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So, Nehemiah 8 is a profound moment in the history of Israel. All the people, men, women, and children, are gathered in Jerusalem. To understand why it's so significant, I just want to do a little bit of a historical backtrack with you. Okay, So, let's go all the way back to uh, 600 B.C., approximately that time. God's people were taken captive to Babylon, by the Babylonian Empire. The city, Jerusalem, the temple in the city and the wall were all completely demolished. They were leveled. 
And remember, in those days, if you wanted to meet with God, no matter what God you had, but specifically the God of Israel, if you wanted to meet with him, if you wanted to worship him, if you wanted forgiveness of sins, you needed to go to the temple in the holy city of Jerusalem. But now there is no temple. All of that is gone. This, this exile, the, the demolishing of the city of Israel and all that went down, it wasn't just about losing their homeland. That, that is tragedy in and of itself. But it's losing, they not only lost that, they lost the ability to actually connect with God. The relationship with God appeared to be broken. That's why this is so significant. So in the midst of all the horror of exile and captivity, one key question was stretching its fingers, its shadowy hand over the top of of these exiles as they marched off. And here was the dark shadow that was being cast. The question they were asking, how do I relate to God now? How do I know Him? And the question behind that is, if everything is destroyed, then what does that mean for me? Does that mean that God doesn't love me anymore? Or maybe... God isn't even there. There's a lot. I, I was thinking about this this morning. The idea that God isn't there, that feeling, those feelings of doubt. And this is just a little aside. If you have doubt today, if you doubt God, um, that, God that God loves you or that he's even there, I just want to tell you that you're in the right place. You might feel like you're in the wrong place to doubt God, but you are in the right place. Some of you may be new to church. Some of you may have considered yourself a Christian for your entire life. Doubt comes for a lot of different reasons. Like if your life is in rubble, for example. You look around and everything looks demolished. That's what Israel had. I just don't ever want to give you the impression, I don't want you to get the impression, or or for you to maintain the impression that, that church is a place for people who don't doubt. It's just not true. We know that's not true, because we all doubt. God wants doubters to draw near too. He wants them drawing near him also. And now I can't I cannot answer every doubt that you have this morning. Doubts run in all kinds of different directions. But I do want to invite you to listen intently, just like what Israel did as the word was being read and explained to them. I want to invite you to listen intently and consider what God's word says to you today, to what it says about the God who is there. The God who does love you, who is real. He really is there. He really does love you. Okay, so just picking, picking us back up. Uh, the rebuilding that we've seen in Ezra and Nehemiah was not about uh, reestablishing rituals. When they wanted to build the wall and the city and the temple, it wasn't like we need to get our little ritualistic religiosity in order. It was about relationship. Relationship with God. From the very beginning, God related to his people. So now we're going way back, almost all the way to the beginning of time. God related to his people through promises, through covenants. A covenant is an agreement, typically between two parties with a set of rules. I'll do this for you, and you'll do this for me. He did it, God did it with Abraham. He did it with Moses and the people. He did it with David. And what he said is, I'll be faithful and I will bless you. As you, my people, remain faithful to me. And if that sounds, this mutual faithfulness, if that sounds like marriage, then you're on the right track. That's a good modern day 
picture of a covenant. In, in Nehemiah 8, what's happening is, as they pull out God's word, it's like they're pulling out the old marriage vows. God is there. The people are there. They're inside the city. They're surrounded by the newly built, rebuilt wall. The temple is rising up before them. These are visible signs of God's faithfulness to his people. The leaders, just getting the whole picture, the leaders are perched high on a tower so that all could see and hear God's word. And the people, as they go up to, to hear, as they go up to read God's word, they stand just like we stand on Sunday mornings out of reverence for God's word. God's word is read. They listen intently. The meaning is explained. They raise their hands in worship. They bow their heads in awe. So what's happening here? What's the picture that we see in in Nehemiah 8, especially verses 1 through 8? They're renewing the covenant. They're remembering God's promises. They remember God's faithfulness to them, even though they were unfaithful. They remember, it's another way to think about it, they remember who they are and who God is. Here's another way to think about it. They know where they fit in the cosmos. They remember who and what they're made for. They remember God's faithful love. Here's what I want you to remember. God's word does that for you too. It tells you who you are. Why you're here. What you're made for. It tells you where you fit in the cosmos. It tells you that you are loved by God. God's word is central to that. This is why we structure our Sunday mornings right now, what you're experiencing right now, why we structure our Sunday mornings the way that we do, centered around the word of God. That's why we stand when God's word is read. It's the words of the living God. He's speaking to us. This is why Sunday after Sunday after Sunday we hear from God's word and why I and other teachers explain the meaning to you. It's to drive into our easily doubting and discouraged and fearful hearts that we were made to know the God of the universe who loved us first. Throughout scripture, one of the prominent pictures, one of the prominent functions of God's word is the power to create. When the universe was created, do you remember how God made it? He made it with his words. He spoke it, and it was from nothing. His word creates. It forms. And his word is forming here in Nehemiah 8. What is he forming? He is forming his people. He's creating his people. He's bringing them together. If you trust in Jesus today, you are in covenant with God. You belong to God and he belongs to you. And Jesus' covenant is the greatest covenant. It is a covenant in his blood. The righteous requirements of remaining faithful to God, his covenant requirements, we could never do that. We are sinners. So Jesus kept our end of the agreement and his covenant keeping, his good deeds became ours so that we are loved by God forever.
That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's for us. If that's you today, no matter how weak or feeble, no matter how young you are or how old you are, no matter how weak your faith might feel, like it's going to break off at any moment, you have been formed by God, recreated by God through his word. I'm going to take you back to where we started this morning. Jason and I didn't know we were going to do this. First Peter 1, what Jason started with. You've been born again. It's going to be on your screen. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. I just want you to sense. Here's what I want you to feel. This is how I want Nehemiah 8 to intersect with your life as a follower of Jesus in 2021. I want you to sense your place in the great story this morning. This great plan of redemption that God is working through his son Jesus Christ. You are part of that. What happened in Nehemiah 8 is happening right here, right now. Our God is here. He is speaking. We are listening. He is forming. By his word, he is forming, remaking, renewing, showering us with the amazing truth, again, that he loves us and is for us. So, this truth, I, I want to do some practical application with you right now. Um, and so, I just, as you're able, as you're able to stand right now, I just want to invite you to stand. I know this is a little awkward, this is normal, but I just want to respond how this text invites us to respond. I, I want to invite you to stand, and I want to invite you to raise your arms. If you don't feel, feel comfortable doing that, that's fine, but that's what they did in Nehemiah. And I'm just going to pray this for us. This is Psalm 145. Let's just praise the Lord, that we are His, and He is ours. I extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. We all do. Every day, we will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, we all now meditate. Your works shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and we will declare your greatness. We declare your greatness in this place. You have been good to us, O God. Your works, they pour forth the the fame of your abundant goodness, and they shall shout aloud, sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. O Lord, we praise you together as your people. Thank you that thank you that you love us. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So what happens next? Amen. Amen. Yeah, let's Amen. 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 What happens next is unexpected. Verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Everyone starts crying, weeping. Why would they cry? When the covenant is read, when God's word is read, what do they find? God has been faithful. And we have not. 
One of the many ways that God's word forms us, recreates us, is by shining a light on our sin. We see the beauty and the majesty and the holiness of God, and we see just how far short we fall. God's word is a sword. That's That's what the Bible calls itself. It's a sword. It cuts to the heart. It can be quite painful. It can be painful to be shown your thoughts and your intentions. It's like a surgeon's scalpel. It's incredibly precise. It cuts deep into the deepest parts of us. So when you read God's word, or when you hear it, do you read it or listen to it thinking about how it corrects you? How it challenges you? That, that might feel scary or daunting, depressing. But here's why that's important. God wants you to be happy. That's a big theme in this chapter. He wants you to be truly happy. And the pathway to happiness to joy, to peace, comes through Him making you more and more like Jesus. Conviction of sin is the work of the doctor. Often painful, but ultimately good for removing the sickness. And that doctor is the Lord Himself through His Word. Jesus said this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Charles Spurgeon said this, The steps by which we ascend to the palace of delight are usually moist with tears. Now, in Nehemiah 8, comfort comes quickly to those who are weeping over sin. The leaders of Israel did something that to me, this is what seems surprising to me, counterintuitive, unexpected. The conviction of sin has come, and the people see how far short they have fallen of what God expects. But the leaders say, stop crying. Don't weep. And the reason that they give, that's in the second half of verse 9. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. And three times it says in this passage, this day is holy. What does that mean? Essentially, the leaders are telling the people, weep no more. You are forgiven. God has accepted you. Instead, rather than weeping and crying, go party. Verse 10. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. This reminds me, this, this incredible release, this feeling of acceptance reminds me of a scene in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian, who's the protagonist, the guy you kind of follow through the story of Pilgrim's Progress, is standing before the cross. Up to that point, he was carrying his sins on his back as a burden. A heavy burden. And he looks up to the cross and his burden, his sins that had been weighing him down, rolls off his back and down the hill into the open tomb where he sees it no more. And then he says this. This this is what Bunyan writes who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He says, Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. And this is what he's saying. It'll be on your screens. I came this far laden with my sin. Nothing could ease the grief that I was in until I came here. What a place this is. Here is the beginning of my bliss. Here the burden fell off my back. Here the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed tomb, blessed rather be 
the man that there was put to shame for me. There at the foot of the cross, his burden was released and he jumps three times for joy. God's work did the conviction of sin and the people are assured of their acceptance and now it is time to leap for joy. It is time to feast for the people of God. This is a word to us, brothers and sisters, this is a word to us who are weighed down with sin. Yes, weep over your sins, confess and turn from them. But then, stop crying. Stop beating yourself up over it. Why? You are accepted. How? It's that grand flow of the covenant love of God. He loved us so much. He remained so completely faithful to his promises that he sent his son to die for our sins so that whoever believes in him would not perish in sin but have eternal life. You are accepted fully by faith in Jesus Christ. Are you weary today? Do you feel beaten down by your sins? Do you feel beaten down by life? Weep. Weep over your sins and then receive from the Lord your assurance that he does indeed pardon you. You are forgiven. And what is your assurance? What do you base your assurance on? How do you know that he has pardoned you? It is the cross of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, slain for us. And you know what else? Not just the cross, the empty tomb. God accepted Jesus' sacrifice for sin. For your sin, he accepted it. He raised up Jesus, victorious over the grave, over your sin, and the price has been paid. There's no more price for you to pay. There's nothing else for you to do. He has done it all. And so when God looks at you, He does not see your sin. He sees His beloved Son, and He calls you His precious child. Weep no more. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, He has conquered. But there's actually more. There's more for us as His people here. There's more for the people of God. As if the promise of acceptance by him through the blood of Christ is not enough. There is more. Look at the second half of verse 10. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let's just recap what we've seen so far. God speaks through his word. The people are cut to the heart. They receive assurance that they are accepted. And now we see the source of this feast inducing joy. The source of the joy is God himself. It is the joy of God that gives them strength, that picks them up off the floor of their failures and unfaithfulness. It is the joy of the Lord that enables them to weep no more. It is the joy of the Lord that pours into them so that it pours out of them with great rejoicing. Inside this ring right here, my wedding ring, is uh, Psalm 1611. Psalm 1611. And it says this, You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. God, in himself, is joyful. In his presence, is fullness of joy. If you enter into the presence of God, 
you are entering into the fullness of joy. He is a happy God. Now, this doesn't mean that he doesn't feel other emotions like sorrow or anger. But let me ask you this. When you think of God, what do you think of? When you picture seeing his face, what do you see? Do you see galactic crossed arms and a furrowed brow? Is he annoyed by you? Is he angry at you? Do you think of God being a joyful God? Joyful. Nehemiah 8, remember, it's reverberating with covenant love. God kept his side. He is faithful. The people didn't do theirs. But God remains faithful. He accepts them. Don't be grieved, for his joy will be your strength. God's covenant love for his people, for you, is a joy-filled love. A fullness of joy kind of love. My great love for Darcy as my bride reflects in small ways the abundant, full, complete, perfect joy that God has over his bride. And who is his bride? It's us, his church. This is so significant. This is such a huge part of my own journey with God. I ache for myself to know this more. I ache for all of us to understand this more, for this truth to be driven deep, because it truly does change the way that we live. Dane Ortland said this, there are two ways to live the Christian life. You can live either for the heart of Christ or from the heart of Christ. You can live life for the smile of God or from the smile of God. What is he saying? If we live for the heart of Christ, if we live for the smile of God, we believe that God's heart towards us, that when we see him, is like this. Show me why I ought to love you. If we live for the smile of God. This is the opposite of the gospel. This is the opposite of the very heart of God. If you live from the heart of Christ, from the smile of God, you sense his delight in you as his beloved child. And it changes the way that you live. It's the gospel. Because of Christ, God looks on you and he smiles and you live from that. Do you believe that God has joy in you? Listen to God's joy-filled heart for you. This is from Psalm 149. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. Zephaniah 3. Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Can you picture that? God himself singing for joy. Why? Over you? It's true. Or take the cross of Christ. Why did Jesus go there? How did he go there? Begrudgingly? Unwillingly? No. Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He went there for you, with joy. 
as we absorb this truth that God delights in us, that He loves us, it brings strength. The joy of God in us as His people brings strength. Think, think about it practically for just a couple minutes with me. Think, think of how it would change the fears that you face at work or at school or at home to know that God is smiling on you in those moments. Think of how it changes arguments and disagreements with your spouse. How it changes parenting to think that God is smiling on you and delighted with you. Not that you're just trying to work and work to make him happy. Think of of how it changes your your cravings for success or relationships, your desire for marriage or happiness or fulfillment, to know that you are delighted in. He's so happy he's singing over you. Every once in a while, and and I wish it was all the time, I catch glimpses in my own life, I'm talking about myself right now, I catch these glimpses of God's joy filled love. And and honestly, it makes me feel peace and joy and strength. It really does. Dane Ortland says this one more time. Experiencing that love of God, knowing his joy in us, it really it really is what brings rest, wholeness, flourishing, shalom, deep peace. You see for a moment that in Christ you are truly invincible. The verdict really is in. Nothing can touch you. He has made you his own and will never cast you out. This is what the joy of the Lord does in us. We're invincible. We feel that. We know that he's for us and will never be cast out. The joy of the Lord gave strength to God's people in Nehemiah 8 and they rejoiced. They feasted. That's what the the latter part of the chapter is all about. Verse 17 says this, And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. I just want to close with a story that was told by Brennan Manning and I think it illustrates what it means to be formed by God's word. To know his covenant love. And to experience the joy of the Lord being our strength. That's what I really want you to understand today. You are loved with an unbreakable love from God. He has displayed that through his son Jesus. And he is delighted in you. A man named Edward took his uncle on a two week vacation to Ireland. To celebrate his uncle's 80th birthday. On the day of his birthday... The the nephew and the uncle got up before dawn and dressed in silence. They took a walk along the shores of Lake Killarney and stopped to watch the sunrise standing side by side with not a word exchanged and staring straight at the rising sun. Suddenly the uncle, remember he's 80 years old, suddenly the uncle turned and went skipping down the road. He was radiant, beaming, smiling from ear to ear. His nephew said, Uncle Seamus, you you look really happy. I am, lad, he replied. Do you want to tell me why? And his 80-year-old uncle replied, Yes, you see, my father is very fond of me. Do you know that your father is fond of you? That he delights in you? 
It may sound crazy, but it is true. And it is a promise whose source is God himself brimming with joy. It is a promise sealed in the blood of Jesus Christ and his empty tomb, which he did for you. It is a promise of strength for you, child of God. He loves you. Praise God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, just open our eyes to behold these wonderful truths and press on us again the the amazing good news that we are accepted, forgiven, your child. That you are fond of us. Oh Lord, give us strength. Strength from your joy. Fill Fill us with that joy. And enable us to go and do your work in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.